1: Good afternoon. Welcome to the Saturday edition of the best of fight back from the week that was. The good news is that Toronto residents as young as 50 may book COVID vaccines through the Ontario website or the hotline if they live in certain high risk neighborhoods. People in Peel may now book a shot if they're as young as 50. And in York region, the age eligibility is 45. But the bad news is that the uptake of the vaccine in adults over 65 is lower than what was expected, with hundreds of thousands of these individuals in Ontario still waiting to book a first shot. On Monday, while I was filling in for Libby Nimer, our Zoomer squad weighed in on the vaccine rollout to that point. Here are Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor of Zoomer Magazine, David Kravitz, Chief Membership Officer at CARP and Vice President at Zoomer Media, and Bill Van Gorder, Interim Chief Policy Officer at CARP.
2: It really is uh, alarming. And uh, uh, to, to think that they—you know so many of them have not been, that there's now vaccine left over, so we're moving into the uh, younger age groups. And what kind of focus is being put on trying to find out why those people aren't being uh, vaccinated? We know that the rates, even in long-term care homes, are not as high as they should be. So it, it's very, very concerning after all the the uh, requests to make sure the older folks got uh, vaccinated first. Now uh, they're either staying away or being ignored in droves.
1: David, you have discovered. Um, I mean, it's we know that language and ethnicity are barriers to get the vaccine, but you've really drilled down on what's happening here.
2: Well, I think that it's a it, it is an issue because if you look at the areas where there is no uh, pronounced barrier, the it isn't just that it's less than fifty percent of those over eighty; it's as high as seventy percent in certain neighborhoods, and it's down below fifty in other neighborhoods. And that's the swing that I looked at. And if you take all the languages except French, because that's so top-heavy in Quebec, but um, I looked at some research that took every language other than English, um, starting with Italian, Portuguese, German, Greek, uh, all uh, Cantonese, Mandarin, uh, Hindi, or all, like 15 different languages, you, lump, you can lump them all together, and about just under 7% of Canadians will speak one of those languages most often at home. Okay. And in Ontario, perhaps not surprisingly, it jumps to about 7.5%, about 20% more than Canada. But in Metro, it's almost 12%. It's almost double the percentage of Canadians. So you have upwards of 700,000 households in Toronto who, when they wake up in the morning, English is not the first words, uh, you know, the first language that they use. And there, there is some evidence that there was a correlation between uh, communities that are heavily uh, immigrant or, or not uh, fluent in English, and either the reluctance or the barrier, perhaps they haven't found out the information yet. Um, there's definitely a correlation
1: there, and it's uh, very alarming. Peter, what are your thoughts on this issue? Well, I think, I
3: mean, David's obviously touched on the main reason, um, but there's also the technology gap. That um, you know, we a lot of us just take for granted we can go online and book an appointment, and and that's no problem, you know. But um, you know, a, a lot of seniors uh, don't even have computers, mm-hmm. and a lot of, if they do, they use it for very basic uh, reasons: email or you know, perhaps Facebook at the most, and and they're just not able to navigate the technology involved to get their. Uh, to book their appointment if they 've been overlooked by their doctor or um, one of these random uh, mobile units so so as as well as language uh, tech, uh, technology is is imposing a huge uh, burden here on the um, on those who haven't been vaccinated yet.
1: David, I'm wondering, you know, with the hotline number that's uh, for the entire province one eight 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 nine 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 six four eight eight. If you speak a different language and you pick up the phone and you dial that number, I'm wondering, do you have any options to speak any other language but English?
2: i don't I don't know, I don't yeah. want to give a you know a glib answer, but again, I would point out that in past weeks on this show, we've heard from people who said I went online and I deliberately stayed online for an hour because I didn't want to lose my place or I phoned and I stayed on the phone. Um, people were having to work hard in previous weeks to get an appointment booked or to find out where where they could book an appointment uh, in the early going, it was a challenge for people who are totally fluent in English and and reasonably, you know, Mm -hmm. computer literate.
1: David Kravitz, Chief Membership Officer at CARP and Vice President at Zoomer Media, Peter Mugrich, Senior Editor of Zoomer Magazine, and Bill Van Gorder, Interim Chief Policy Officer at CARP, Fight Back's Monday Zoomer Squad. You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. On Monday, we also looked for the answers to two main questions. How scary is this third wave of COVID-19 with a more contagious and severe variants of the virus? And how should the vaccine rollout adjust to confront it most effectively? Epidemiologist Dr. Tim Sly is a professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health at Ryerson University and a regular here on Fight Back.
4: There's no question about it. It's been going up. Uh, We've been watching this uh, steep curve for about a month now, and it's now um, uh, way up equivalent to um, about three quarters of the way uh, we were up in the the second wave uh, back in the, the... last year about two-thirds of the way through last year it's not showing these signs of going down and remember all the data that we get are always out of date so even if we stop everything dead right now Mm -hmm. the the numbers will still going up this thing is scary there's no question about it the original uh... the original variants were bad enough but we sort of lapsed a little bit into complacency there to some degree uh... the new uh, variants of concern as they call the three major ones uh, each come with a, a a particularly horrible little package of uh, of goods and uh, we've now seen the P1 for a variety right from Brazil appearing in the in the Whistler area and the rest of BC.
1: What about this Tokyo variant? Uh, we were talking about that on the news this morning. Yeah, there's there's actually not
4: just a three or four. There's, there's several hundred because each one has got its own little tiny variations in in changes, at, uh, additions and subtractions in the gene code. So the actual significance of this lot, nobody really has got a full grip on it yet. For example, we we know that the one one seven uh, seems to spread a lot more rapidly, and there's some suggestion it's a bit more lethal too if you get it. The uh, the one three five one. It, its particular trick, its party trick, if you like, is to evade some of the antibodies that you may get, whether because of a recent infection or because of the vaccine, and that doesn't look good for it. Uh, we we don't have that one uh, too much in Canada so far, but the third one, the P one, we're not quite sure what to, what the basket of goods that brings along, but it won't be good. Certainly, if we if we can see the uh, the rate of infection uh, in uh, in BC at the moment, it's it's going way up.
1: Dr. Sly, so of the three thousand cases that uh, have uh, taken place over the last four days, break those numbers down: variants versus the original virus. Well, what we're seeing—if we
4: swing back a little bit in terms of isolations of the virus—yep. What we can say is that uh, the, the, the 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 variants of concern, you could count them on one hand, and of percentages back in in February. Uh, As of about a week and a half ago, they were over 50%, in some areas about 60%. Mm -hmm. It does vary across the country. And that keeps on going up. In Britain, they reached about 89%, which was a new variant. In other words, the old, the original variant. uh, variety of the virus was uh, very much in the minority and this is why the spread is seen is is going so rapidly it's not the fact they might be slightly more lethal but it's that ability to spread instead of, instead of spreading on average we estimate about uh, 2.7 in other words the, the r naught. Uh, if you're an original case, you can give it to an average of about 2.6, 2.7 other people. That was the original version. The latest one, we think that could weigh up to, be up to about 3, 3.2, something like that. So you can see the, that exponential. You remember the old advertisement, you give it to two friends, and yeah. they give it to two friends. and the, That's the rate of, uh, of the exponent. That's the thing we're worried about, that rate.
1: Why would it be in the virus's interest, or this variant of the virus, to try to take down people who are relatively young and relatively healthy?
4: The virus isn't really a living thing. It's a, it's a little lump of RNA and a little protein lipid shell, and its only purpose is to reproduce. So, given an opportunity, it reproduces. If there's no opportunity, as in as in the, uh, herd immunity, it. it won't be able to reproduce, so it's got no intent, no no evolutionary um, uh, purpose at all. The fact is, though, that if if a virus is able to reproduce, say, three times as, as as well as the next virus, that virus will become the dominant one, and it'll eventually move along until the the the, the, the herd, that is, the population, becomes. Uh, uh, mainly immune to it. And then it'll sort of fizzle out largely. It may become endemic among the few people who haven't been vaccinated or and so on. But this it has no purpose. You can't sort of look at it like that and look
1: at... Okay. You know. Epidemiologist Dr. Tim Sly, professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health at Ryerson University. That was his conversation with me on Monday. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Coming up after the break, Dr. Michael Warner has been a vocal opponent of the Ford government's vaccine rollout. What he had to say about it, coming up next.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back.
1: He's been up front with his opinions about COVID-19 and how we should best take it down. Dr. Michael Warner is critical care director at Toronto's Michael Guerin Hospital and is on the front line of the intensive care unit where he is now seeing more people in their 20s, 30s and 40s present with serious symptoms after contracting a variant of the virus while at their jobs. For this reason, Dr. Warner believes the provincial COVID vaccine rollout needs to change and needs to change ASAP. Prior to Premier Doug Ford's announcement to get more vaccinations to younger essential workers, I spoke with Dr. Warner on Monday.
5: The disease that we're dealing with now on the front lines is is a completely different disease from what we faced and what our patients faced in wave one and wave two. Every patient, you know, with very few exceptions, has one of the variants, usually one one seven. far more infectious, affects patients in a different way. They're much sicker, um, they're much younger, and almost by definition, none of my patients would qualify for vaccination based on the criteria that were set around the time that wave two was just beginning, which is when, you know, our current rollout plan was conceived. So just like any business or any anyone who wants to be nimble, you have to pivot, and we need to recognize that the fires are in the factories, they're in the poor postal codes, they're in the apartment buildings where essential workers live, and that's where the vaccines need to go. They don't need to go to Young and Eglinton so that well-to-do people could stand in line for three hours to get a shot at a pharmacy, uh, because those people can minimize their exposure risk, whereas my patients, because of the nature of the work they do, cannot, and they need to be protected.
1: In your ICU at Michael Garron right now, what is the makeup of the patients? Are you primarily younger now?
5: Um, you know, ten minutes before we got on, I just admitted a patient in their thirties uh, to the to the ICU to go along with the other patient in their thirties, to go along with the other patient in their twenties, and then two in their forties, all with COVID nineteen. Wow! Uh, so uh, I have no one in their eighties uh, with COVID nineteen right now. And uh, if you were to pull intensivists at other hospitals in the GTA, they may not have the exact same answer, but it would be a similar
6: uh, trend.
1: Are you starting to get some traction in terms of response from the government, from the chief medical officer of health, uh, listening to your concerns?
5: Well, let's be clear. I mean, I I have no influence other than putting things out there in the public and letting public opinion, you know, ebb and flow. Um, You know, I'm telling patient stories, including stories of, the wife of a factory worker who was forced to go to work despite being in the midst of a COVID outbreak, who's now dead, Uh, and she was in her mid-40s. I told that story, and it's kind of gone all over the internet. So I have no idea what Dr. David Williams is thinking. Uh, All I know is that at our vaccination center in East York, we're not allowed to vaccinate people under the age of 50. Right,
1: right.
5: And, And that's nonsensical, right? Because um, you know, my patients who are in their 20s, 30s, 40s and 50s, they're the ones who work in the factories that create the goods that you have in your house that could deliver, get delivered by Amazon, by the people who work, you know, in that industry who, that gets fulfilled in a warehouse in Peel. I mean, all those people are the people who are actually prioritized to be vaccinated last in phase two. They're in the cannot work from home category, uh, group two, which is June and July. We don't just need to tweak this. We need to flip it on its head okay. right now. If you live with an 80 year old, if you live with your parents and they're 80 years old and you're taken into a vaccination center and you live in an apartment building with your children, that entire family should be vaccinated because you're the essential worker that's going to the factory that's going to bring it home to infect everybody. So I think we just have to, we have to be a little smarter about this and not be so regimented. You're in this category, you're in that category. I mean, we see people not showing up to get their vaccines, right? Whereas my patients are desperate. And it's not being offered to them. And uh, that needs to change. And we can't actually wait. Like, we can't wait till we see the data. Because we're seeing it in real life, in real time, in the ICU. And and it's crystal clear, at least to me, what needs to be done. And hopefully, there'll be political will to do so. Because that means other people will not have access to vaccinations, because we have limited supply. But they can minimize their exposure risk by staying home. I think the public also needs to take some responsibility. Like, nobody is forcing you to go to Yorkdale. And, and expose that poor clerk at the checkout to face after face after face, right? That's your decision. And you're doing that on the backs of essential workers and non-essential workers. They should be paid not to work, and people should just stay at home if they can uh, and make the premier and his cabinet ministers know that public the public is behind the plan to support essential workers. Politicians, you know, they want to be re-elected, and if public opinion says that's the right thing to do now, they would likely follow it. So that message needs to get out from the public. They need to organize. They need to share. Write your MPP. Write your MP. Um, call your local city councilor, et cetera.
1: Dr. Michael Warner is Critical Care Director at Toronto's Michael Guerin Hospital. Dr. Warner mentioned Yorkdale in our conversation. It was on Wednesday, Premier Ford announced a plan to get more essential workers as young as 18 vaccinated against COVID-19 through mobile clinics and also the stay-at-home order, which closes malls like Yorkdale and other non-essential retailers. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Tuesday was National Caregiver Day, a day to recognize the 8 million Canadians who are caring for loved ones. It's an annual day to bring awareness to the crucial role caregivers play, but also a time to shed light on their unique challenges and unmet needs. The role of caregivers is more important than ever as the COVID-19 pandemic has created additional pressures, negatively jeopardizing their physical, emotional, and financial health. On National Caregiver Day, I was joined by Amy Kupal, CEO of the Ontario Caregiver Organization, Carol Ann Alloway, a full-time caregiver to her husband and founder of Family Caregivers Voice. And Karen Leed, who looked after her mother for 20 years before her death in January of 2020.
7: My mother was diagnosed um, at the age of 57 uh, with Alzheimer's disease. At the time, there was actually very little resources or um, nobody was around to show me how to live with this disease. And with dementia, especially Alzheimer's disease, it's not a neat and tidy uh, disease. So it doesn't follow stages where you can kind of like be proactive in her care. It was sort of like a day-to-day roller coaster of uh, you don't know what symptom is going is to present that day. I'm just speaking specifically about dementias, but it's, it's such a savage disease because it affects Everybody that's involved in that care of that person. So it's not just, you know, taking away um, the, the cognitive functions of the individual. It's sort of like taking away a lot of the people that are caring for that person little by little.
1: Let's go over to uh, Carol Ann Alloway. You are probably a lot of this feels familiar to you, Carol Ann. Your husband's story. How did you come to be his caregiver?
8: He had broken his ankle about 30 years ago, and um, after we retired, we started traveling, and he was having trouble walking on his ankle, so we had it assessed, and they recommended he have an ankle replacement. That one operation with a three-month recovery turned into 10 operations over seven years because of this recurring infection that they couldn't quite get a handle on.
1: And in terms of support for you financially and just time off, having respite for yourself, what does that look like?
8: There were no resources. I didn't know. I didn't even know I was a caregiver until I met somebody um, after I'd been caring for my husband after five years. And she told me that that's what I was called, as a caregiver. So Mm -hmm. there was no respite. And I didn't think to ask for help. You're just sort of you know, get on with it kind of thing. Just as Karen said, it's not just us that was affected. It's all the people around us. You know, friends just gave up, well, not talking to us, but inviting us over because Bill couldn't really travel anywhere. So, you know, people get on with their lives.
1: Amy Kupel, CEO of the Ontario Caregiver Organization. Um, A lot of this sounds very familiar to you, I'm sure.
9: It definitely does. I think both Karen and Carol Ann's stories underscore the common themes we hear from caregivers across the province, whether that's about paying for uh, services out of pocket, whether it's about needing respite, but also not self-identifying as a caregiver. Most people take on their caregiving responsibilities because they say, I'm a spouse or I'm a child or I'm a sibling or a parent, and they do what needs to be done.
1: Let's talk about what's available in terms of financial support, physical support, mental support, and what is still needed. Sure. So,
9: certainly on our website at OntarioCaregiver.ca, we have links to all of the financial supports that are available through the Ontario and federal governments. And we also have supports for caregivers that can help them navigate their caregiving journey and get the support that they need in terms of peer support, peer mentorship, that kind of thing. But what we know from caregivers is that every caregiving circumstance is unique and it's about finding the supports that you need for you. Karen talked about being a caregiver for 15 years while she was working and working caregivers have their own unique challenges. So One of the programs that we have includes uh, offerings for both working caregivers and employers to better understand the needs of working caregivers and how they can be successful in being both a caregiver and at work.
1: Amy Kupal, CEO of the Ontario Caregiver Organization, Carol Ann Alloway, full-time caregiver to her husband and founder of Family Caregivers Voice, and Karen Lead, who looked after her mom for 20 years. Before her mom's death in January of 2020. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's best of fight back. Still to come, what you had to say about the week that was and the fight back knockout call of the week.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown.
1: Fight Back with Libby's Nimer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the
0: phones. And now, Fight Back's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week
1: but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout call of the week comes from Nancy in Toronto who wants to see essential workers get their shots even if it means taking the shots to the factories and manufacturing plants. I so
6: agree with that about getting mobile units out to those food processing plants out to Amazon. I don't understand how why it's taken so long. It's it's a basic it's, it's not that hard to do this. The government is spending tons of money. This is just another simple thing to do. And I, I don't understand. Every week, there's the numbers of, they, here are the cases in the different workplaces. They name the companies. How difficult is it to go and sit there? Yes, of course, some people do not want the vaccine, but some of those people are going to want the vaccine. And I also don't think it's hard to get some people in those buses who speak, their la- who speak another language. Of course, people are going to want to have someone talk to them about the vaccine. It's not that hard. We N- live in a, in a city with how many different languages? Of course, dozens we can and dozens. do this. Yep. I think that the government doesn't want to do that.
1: Nancy's voice was heard. This very formula was announced by Premier Doug Ford on Wednesday. nine six three six i'm jane brown join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of fight back
0: the best of fight back is produced by jane brown justin Eacock, and zeve hattie with technical production by kelly robotham executive producer moses nimer